Well, I already hinted earlier that we're looking at some challenging portions of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount these days. Uh, It's the kind of thing that just on the surface often sounds like nonsense. So when we first read it, you think, Jesus, where in the world are you coming from? In fact, um, uh, just to be clear, in case anybody else had this uh, challenge with the graphic that uh, David designed for the series, which looks really awesome, um, we had somebody who came in, one gal came in last week, when she first saw the graphic, she thought the name of the series was uh, (laughs) non-consensual. Whole other topic, okay? (laughs) But it is nonsensical which is because sometimes our first response, our gut reaction to what Jesus says in this portion of his sermon is, um, that's nonsense. Who could actually ever live like this? But he's serious, and he's describing, remember, what life looks like in his kingdom of love, what it would look like if things were done on earth as they are in heaven. Or as I've been saying lately, if everybody always acted in love, what would the world be like? This is the picture that Jesus is trying to give us. And he's calling us to follow him seriously in these challenges that he gives us. It's kind of like what Kara just said a couple of moments ago, is that um, frequently what we run into when we really listen to Jesus is his ways are different than our ways, you know? <laughs> but he doesn't let us off the hook with that. He's, he's drills down pretty deeply, and he's going to do that in this passage today uh, for sure. And his earliest followers took him seriously. That's one of our best testimonies to what this meant in, in, in Jesus' teaching is those folks in the first century who heard this sermon took him seriously, and they committed themselves to living a life of indiscriminate love even when it meant their own deaths. If you missed last week, I'm going to at least share with you the good news that I proclaimed because it really is foundational to this entire nonsensical portion here. I I said that it is good news that when our first instinct is to respond to evil done to us with more evil done to them, Jesus invites us to imagine a new way of being human that doesn't plot revenge but reflects God's generous love instead. Love creates ways to challenge evil without engaging in the evil. That, friend is a game changer. If you missed the message, it's all out there on the app and all of our social platforms, please. It's so foundational to understanding, for instance, what I'm going to talk about today, that if you missed that, you missed a really important part of the conversation. So I will refer back to it a couple of times when it's especially poignant in the message today, but nothing replaces you going and and tuning in for those 25 minutes sometime this week, all right? Uh, Right after what Jesus says last week, he adds another layer of nonsense. (laughs) Listen to him. You've heard that it was said, you must love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who harass you so that you will be acting as children of your father who is in heaven. He makes the sun rise on both the evil and the good. He sends rain on both the righteous and the unrighteous. If you only love those who love you, What reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Last week, I kind of responded after the reading with, uh, what? And I kind of feel like that again today. What are you saying, Jesus? I mean, it sounds all well and good, but if I got to actually live this out in my real life, this is kind of tough. Amen? Yeah. 
Over the years, I've thought of all different kinds of scenarios where this sort of teaching would play out in my real life. Thankfully, most of them I've never had to live out. Um, but you probably have some going through your mind, too. I'm going to name just one to get us to wrestle with what this could look like in your real life. God forbid this would ever happen to any of us. But have you ever wondered what you would really do if somebody broke into your home and threatened the people that matter most to you in the world? Has that ever gone through your mind, thought, what would, what would I actually do? Some of you, I know it has. Some of you have a whole plan, okay? I have a buddy who I didn't know this for years. Uh, he, he's one of our heitzers, and uh, for years I didn't know this about him, but apparently he scopes out every room he walks in. Probably some of you do the same thing. He always has his exit strategy ready, every hotel, every restaurant, every public bathroom. He knows exactly what he will do if he gets cornered or somebody attacks him in that space. I'm like, wow, that is a really challenging way to live every day. That's what you're thinking about all the time? I had no idea, but some of us think like that. Most of us have probably thought about this kind of situation. Now, I'm going to ask the question again with just a little bit of nuance, but nuance that matters a lot. If you are a disciple of Jesus, what would love require you to do in that situation? And does your plan meet that test? And I know some of you immediately are thinking, love for my family? would require me to blow them away. I'm asking about your love for the home invader. What does love for your enemy require in a situation like that? Now, I'm not naive enough to believe that all of us in here would agree on the next right thing to do in that case. (laughs) But what I do hope we can agree on is that if we are disciples of Jesus committed to love everyone at all times, this presents a real conundrum. It's not the kind of thing we can just shake off and act like that conversation doesn't matter. It actually does matter. And if there's an easy answer, let me just say this, if there is an easy answer, it's probably the one you don't want. (laughs) So let's talk about that. I'm going to start with the good news that I'm proclaiming today, and then we're going to kind of work our way to surrendering to it. I don't know if we'll get that far or not in our next 20, 22 minutes, but that's what we're going to tackle. Here's the good news that I believe Jesus wants us to hear today. We want to retaliate against and resist those who interfere with our desires because we assume violence solves problems. Jesus' call to self-sacrificial love must override and restrain our instinct for retaliation since love means to will the good of another. We can't perpetrate violence against someone and love them at the same time. Now, again, let's just sit with that for a while. I'm going to help us wrestle with it, I hope, from what Jesus is saying here, but I think What he's saying is clear, at least on this front. He calls us to nothing less than enemy love. We often like to stop the love conversation with love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor like you love yourself. It's just that frequently Jesus presses us on the neighbor thing that even to the neighbor who is your enemy. Again, that's kind of tough. Amen? Wait a minute, Jesus. Where's your common sense? (laughs) Where's your common sense in this whole conversation? 
I think it would be helpful to point out that Jesus walks this talk because where we see Jesus and the love of God most revealed for all creation, including his enemies, including those of us who have opposed him on numerous occasions ourselves, is that love looks like this. Amen? So, so it's not like he just says flowery stuff and paints some beautiful picture of what it could look like. Jesus actually shows us what it looks like, and it does cost him his life. So we have to also wrestle with that whenever we have this conversation. Now, I know that our challenges are numerous and they're real. So let me just name two or three of them. First of all, we have a built-in instinct for self-preservation, so there's that. It often just like, boom, kicks in instinctually whenever we're threatened. Second of all, we live in a culture that has trained us to operate within this myth of redemptive violence, that when violence is perpetrated against you, more violence will solve that problem. Now, this is one of those points that I pause and say, if you need a little more imagination for what a Christian response might look like, go back to last week and listen, okay? Because I talked a little bit more in depth there. In Christian history, we know that for the first 300 years, the followers of Jesus took this teaching very seriously, very literally, not to act violently against an enemy. Well, what happened 300 years in, Brian? Some of you know this. The Emperor Constantine converted to Christianity. He made Christianity legal in the Roman Empire. He began to invite Christians to have a seat at the table as to how the empire would be run. I don't think I have to tell you that the Roman Empire was awash in violence and blood and all kinds of things. And so Christians were often found themselves at the table having to, I guess they felt the pressure, understandably probably, to help figure out how do we account for the violence of the empire if we're going to help run it. One of the theories that grew out of that particular challenge we've come to call just war theory, which basically says it's okay to kill somebody if you have a logical reason for doing it. However, we could also admit that's its own challenge because human beings are endlessly capable of rationalizing our choices. Again, amen? Haven't we all done things where we're like, for a long time, we told ourselves, well, it's okay because this. Well, if somebody else knew my story, they would whatever. Right? We've all made up choices, I mean, uh, just arguments to defend our own choices, right? And so it's easy to get trapped in this behavior of, well, violence is okay for me in this situation because... We're just capable of doing that. And that's probably one of the biggest challenges we have at this. But the challenges are real. It just leaves us with this challenge. We can't water down what Jesus so clearly says. I call you to love your enemies, to pray for those who harass you. Those are very clear and straightforward words. I also don't think it helps to change the definition of enemy as annoying neighbor down the road. I don't think that's the enemy Jesus had in mind here. Can I remind you of something I said last week? Who's he preaching to when he delivers this sermon? First century Jewish peasants from Galilee who are under the brutal rule of the Roman Empire at that time. They had real enemies, and they were making their real lives miserable and threatening them at any given moment of the day. So if he wasn't making an exception for that audience, I doubt he'd make an exception for any audience since then. It leaves us with this challenge of accepting or not that this is good news. We want to retaliate against and resist those who interfere with our desires because we assume violence solves problems. Jesus' call to self-sacrificial love must override and must restrain our instinct for retaliation. 
Since love means to will the good of another, we can't perpetrate violence against someone and love them at the same time. Now, to help us, let me go, down, go back and let's break down the words of Jesus that I read a moment ago. Let's just walk through it sort of piece by piece. The first thing it's clear that he says is that love for our neighbor doesn't mean we get to hate our enemy. Now, that's kind of what it had grown into over hundreds of years of Jewish history was God says, love your neighbor. Love God, love your neighbor. You can hate your enemies. And he quite clearly retracts all of that. He says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who harass you. Christians have, for hundreds of years, rationalized away this teaching in the same ways we probably are tempted to do that in this room right now. But it's hard to get around something as clear as love your enemy. We have to at least accept that's a challenging three-word statement right there. Love? What does that mean, Jesus, right now in my life? He goes on to clarify Love everyone without limits as the children of our Father who is love. Listen to him. He says, so you'll be acting as children of your Father who's in heaven. He makes the sun rise on the evil and the good. He makes a rainfall on the righteous and the unrighteous. The only thing I know of that can short-circuit our ability to rationalize our choices by some other means the only thing I know that can override all of that is if we want to love other people like our Father in heaven loves us. That's all I know. Is if we say, that's my highest ideal. A lot of other things I don't know, a lot of other things I can't figure out, but I truly believe the highest calling of a disciple of Jesus, the highest ideal in my life is to love everyone the way God loves me. Love that does not discriminate between, oh, I'll love them because they're, they're well-behaved today, but I'm not going to love this rowdy child over here. Send sun and rain on the good and the evil, the righteous and the unrighteous. I'll say it again. Love that goes this far <laughs> for its enemies. When I see this love, I'm challenged with the fact that it's much more difficult for me to love like this than I would like to admit. Kind of like what Kara was saying a few minutes ago. That my ways don't always look like his way. What do I do with that gap? I'll add to that, if my highest ideal is anything less than this, if it's common sense, if it's some philosophy, if it's um, a political affiliation, if it's my country even, as much as I love my country, if any of those things actually supersede my allegiance to Jesus as Lord, it's easy for me to start rationalizing away all kinds of behavior because that's the highest ideal I aspire to, not the love of God. So this is the single biggest, I think Jesus knows this. It's why he reminds us, here's what the love of God looks like. Just love other people like your father in heaven. And then he goes one step further to be sure we don't just shrug it off and go, well, that's probably not for us today. I don't think he really meant that. He reminds us that it isn't God's love unless it includes the people we most want to leave out. If you only love those who love you, what reward do you have Anybody can do that. <laughs> if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing? Anybody can do that. And he names tax collectors and Gentiles as examples of the people they thought were least worth loving and least good at loving. 
If love means to will the good of another, to love our enemy means I want to seek what is in their best interest as well. What does it mean if I can excuse love as being something that's good for some people, but not necessarily for the people I think deserve it the least? Is that even God's love? Jesus says, that's not what we're talking about. That's not the kind of love we're talking about. Now, (laughs) I'm going to share this good news again. Good news that I think it's difficult for us to embrace and surrender to. But if we could take seriously everything Jesus says in this passage, I think it has the capacity to eventually become good news for us. We want to retaliate against and resist those who interfere with our desires. We assume violence solves problems. Jesus' call to self-sacrificial love must override, it must restrain our built-in instinct for retaliation Since love means to will the good of another, I simply can't perpetrate violence against someone and love them at the same time. These are mutually exclusive things. So, let me go back to that scenario I put out there a few minutes ago because everybody in here is still thinking about that. What's the next right thing to do if a home invader is threatening someone you love? And again, that's just one example. We could go down all kinds of paths here with all kinds of examples that come to our minds in this particular case. But that's enough to get us thinking curiously about this. And I want to confess that I'm not positive I know what I would do if that actually happened at my house this week. I'd like to think that I wouldn't kill my enemy. I'd like to become the kind of person for whom that would be the last instinctual thing I would do under the pressure of the moment. I'd like to think there are more creative ways to engage that situation, which may or may not be successful, but they would at least be honoring to the commitment I've made to Jesus to walk in love with all people at all times. I'd like to think that I don't just love my family, that I truly love everyone, including my enemies. I shared a story last week that's very vulnerable for me. And I truly believe I I have the capacity to love some people who probably think of themselves as my enemy. And I know I genuinely love them. I don't know for sure what that might look like under the pressure of a difficult moment. I also want to clarify one other thing so you don't hear what I'm not saying. Jesus calls us to peacemaking. He does not call us to passivity. These are two entirely different things. But what I think we do have to wrestle with is, what does it look like to respond in a way that doesn't violate love, but still says this is not okay? There are creative ways that love could come up with to do that. I don't think most of us have much of an imagination for that because I think mostly our imagination has been trained, blow them away. And so we've short-circuited our ability to think of any other thing that might be more faithful to the words of Jesus. That's where I want us to wrestle with this a little bit. And I'm not saying this, please hear me. If you're in a situation where you are suffering abuse from someone, get out of that situation. Let us help if you need help. This is not about codependency. This is not about having no boundaries that would protect you from someone who's dangerous, okay? It's asking, what do you perpetrate back toward them? That's 
what we're saying. You may have to also protect yourself from them in some way. I want to become the kind of human that takes what Jesus says seriously here. I want to become the kind of human who believes deep in my heart that I love everyone without discrimination, that I don't get to decide who is the object of my love. Jesus has already decided that for me. I do think that one thing that's happening in me as I reflect more and more on God's love for me and as I surrender more and more to the fact that that love is for everyone, I think that it's easier for me to see some of the goodness of Jesus' otherwise nonsensical teaching in passages like this. Like I can just see the hints of, wow, it would be amazing if everyone always acted in love at all times. And I know that I want to become the kind of human who could genuinely love my enemy, not even just after reflection and time to pray and come to grips with it, but I could do it in the moment. I don't want to be the kind of Christian who just checks all of the boxes because I'm interested in following Jesus' rules. I want something to shift inside my heart and life. Jesus is describing in this sermon, what's it look like for everyone to always live in love? And what would it look like for that to happen in the world so that what is done in heaven is what is done on earth? And I have a hunch that we have to break the cycle of violence somewhere and love has to fill in that gap and I have a built-in operating assumption that Jesus means that seriously for us right now, that it's essential to this whole becoming human again thing that he's up to. I'm gonna offer one other thought <clears throat> that I have to dwell on sometimes. <laughs> Some situations may occur in which the only way in which this teaching could make sense or feel like it's possible for me to live it out is if I believe I live in a forever story and not a finite one. I'll put it more plainly. Sometimes the only way I might be able to genuinely act in love toward a life-threatening enemy is if I'm not that afraid to die. If, however, I think death is the worst thing that could happen to me, I'll probably live like it's the worst thing that could happen to me. And our Lord Jesus, again, I'll point us to him on this point. He shows us what it looks like to be unafraid of death, to go all the way to death for the sake of love, and to say this is what love looks like, and it is the highest ideal. And he does this at the hands of his enemies, and he does it for his enemies all at the same time. Amen? Friend, whatever else we do with this teaching, however else we rationalize it, we have to be able to account for this. This is God's love on ultimate display. And I do know this. What he's asking of his children is, if you will learn from Jesus how to love like Jesus, how to live as Jesus in this world, we have to somehow figure out that he wants us to be little windows of reflection in current reality. We're not just waiting someday for things to be done on earth as they are in heaven. We are the preview of coming attractions. Right now, there is some weight of responsibility on us to say, when people see the way we live, when they see our choices, when they see how love operates through our lives, they get a little glimpse of what heaven could look like. They get a little glimpse of what the love of God must be like in real life. That responsibility we can't shake. <laughs> so I'll share this good news one more time and then I have a question for you. 
Could we get to the point where we would actually surrender to this good news? When we want to retaliate against and resist other people who interfere with our desires because we assume violence solves problems, could we find the self-sacrificial love of Jesus on a cross sufficient to override and restrain our instinct for retaliation? Since love means to will the good of another, can I surrender to the fact that it's impossible to perpetrate violence against someone and profess love, real love for them at the same time? So here's my question. Don't answer out loud. Reflect for a moment. What is one thing that you can notice a name? Kind of like what Kara was saying a few minutes ago. One thing you can already notice a name in the past 20 minutes or so that makes it difficult for you to surrender to whatever Jesus is saying here about loving our enemies. Just think about that. I just want to reflect on it for a moment. What's one thing that makes it difficult for you? Just to be honest, this is kind of like we call it Meadow Heights Confession. This is you just saying, okay, God meets us in reality, good, bad, and ugly. He knows I'm already thinking this anyway. What if I just put words to it? What is one thing that makes it hard for you to surrender to whatever Jesus is saying about enemy love? Because he's certainly saying something, clearly. What makes it hard for you to embrace that as a disciple of Jesus? Now, <laughs> I'm going to ask three or four of you to share what came to your mind. I do want to offer a quick comment, however. This is a confession. This is what we call notice and name, okay? Uh, not, uh, it's, sometimes we do Q&A. That's not what this is. This is not like a discussion. This is just you saying, good, bad, and ugly. Man, Brian, here's where I'm really wrestling with this today. We're just going to acknowledge it. Go, yeah, you're probably not the only one. Probably somebody else in here wrestling with exactly the same thing. And if nobody wants to share, that's okay too. It's a fairly vulnerable subject. But somebody might want to share what came to your mind. Um, what makes it hard for you to surrender to this concept of enemy love that Jesus is talking about? Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Lars. <laughs> See, I told you you were thinking it too, is it feels like this is not fair, all right? And we're just going to leave that there. Again, we're not going to discuss it. We're not going to try to answer, well, is it or isn't it? We're just, all we're doing is acknowledging, Lawrence says, if I'm going to surrender to this, I got to crawl over something. My gut wants to say, that's not fair, Jesus. That, that's not fair for you to ask that of me. Pretty honest response, buddy. Somebody else, what comes to mind? Something different? Sorry? Oh, actually doing it. Thank you, Gary. Yeah. So it, it, Gary's saying, it's one thing to say, yep, yep, that sounds good. Good, Jesus. Can we go to lunch now? <laughs> it's another thing to say, am I to have to do that stuff? That's a, that's a great thing to notice in name. Sometimes doing it, that's where the surrender is, right, is the doing it. It's a challenge to take it from the head to my hands and my heart. What else is challenging to embrace something as nonsensical as this, Charlie. They say that God loved the world, he didn't send a committee. <laughs> he didn't send a committee. <laughs> so is that hard for you or is that a good thing? Oh, okay. <laughs> You'd rather rule by committee? <laughs> yeah. That's actually a really important observation is to say it'd be a little easier if God just sent like a bunch of us with our best thinking, you know, and we'll just all weigh in and decide how we want this to go instead of we got to watch Jesus and listen to Jesus. Kind of goes back to the not fair thing, doesn't it? Judy? Well, um, 
Okay. Okay, yeah. 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 Mm hmm. Judy texted me last week uh, an encouragement about, I almost read it a little while ago actually without naming you, but uh, about the message, how she had to wrestle with last week's message, but she was grateful for it, you know, and what she was basically saying is, I want to surrender to this, but this is hard, right? This is, these, aren't, these aren't the easy fluffy teachings of Jesus. These are definitely the hard ones here. And she's saying, when I look at the condition of the world and, and what that might, I think, require of me, it's hard for me to reconcile that with what it sounds like Jesus wants me to do to engage with that. There's a disconnect of some sort. One more. If we have time for one more, anybody else? Yes, somebody else back there. David, is your hand up or are you? Oh, we have an online one. Awesome. Thank you, online folks. How to forgive people that have hurt you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's huge, right? Because as soon as you name the word enemy, I mean, we'd like to think we don't have any enemies, but most of us have somebody who acted as an enemy towards us at some point, right? It could be childhood bullying on the playground or whatever, that teacher that didn't like you, or it could be a parent, a friend, a neighbor, a, a colleague, a boss. We've all got somebody who's probably made life hard for us in some way. And when we start to fill in an actual name, person, and circumstance, and we all know that we struggle to forgive other people the way God's forgiven us, right? That could be a hard thing to crawl over here for what that looks like. Okay, we'll do one more in the room. Thank you, online folks, for, for uh, joining in. Uh, Iris. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good point. Yes. Yeah. 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 Mm, that's, that's such a good point. So the person online says, I'm struggling at the forgiveness point, which is a real point of struggle uh, for somebody. Iris says, sometimes I can get past the forgiveness part, but I don't know if I actually love them yet. <laughs> That's where it's hard for me to go. Now I've also got to love them, not just forgive them or let them off the hook, right? Are those part and parcel the same? Or for her, she says, these are two separate steps. And that second one, that's hard for me. When it he doesn't call us to enemy forgiveness. He calls us to enemy love. Forgiveness is part of it, but it's bigger than that. It's a great reminder. Guys, listen, here's what I wanted with just that. It was a little bit vulnerable just to say, let's just talk about this in church for a moment before we go. Here's what I wanted us to experience in this room before you leave. We accept that these teachings are challenging, right? We're becoming human again. To become human again is to say, as Kara said so beautifully setting up that last song, it's, it's me figuring out where my ways aren't his ways and then coming to some grips with, I have to surrender to his way. I have to decide if that's what I actually believe and who I actually am. And that's often a very challenging thing for us to do as disciples of Jesus. And it's okay to name that that's challenging, right? If it wasn't challenging, I don't know. Would we be in this room? Would, well, I don't know. I'm not even sure what worship would look like if it wasn't about also saying, how do I surrender to the call of Jesus on my life? I need thee. I need thee every hour. Jesus, oh, I need thee, as we sang a moment ago. Amen? My way's not enough on this one, Jesus. <laughs> I'm probably not there yet. I'm going to need you for sure if I'm ever going to surrender to this. Here's what I want to do to wrap up our time. You may want to close your eyes just to listen. But now that we've sort of broken it all down and we've talked about it and all that stuff, I thought what might be 
a really good idea before we go is just to listen to the words of Jesus again now. Jesus is speaking. You've heard that it was said, you must love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who harass you so that you'll be acting as children of your Father who's in heaven. He makes the sun rise on both the evil and the good. He sends rain on both the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love only those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even tax collectors do that? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing? Don't even the Gentiles do the same. And I might challenge you before we go just to ask what it might look like for you to surrender to those words in real time this week. There maybe is a person, a situation, a group that has been in your mind for the past 20 minutes driving you nuts. <laughs> is there a conversation you need to have with our Father about that? I'm going to pray for all of us in just a moment, but let me give you a moment to do some reflection first. Father, I know that we are still not experiencing life on earth as it is in heaven, not in its fullness. And on days like today when we listen to Jesus and we are captured by his imagination for what that will look like, we want that. Deep down, we know we want that. But Father, we also are able to confess that often the limits of our human love are insufficient to be there yet as much as we'd like. And maybe we don't even know. We don't even have a good enough imagination for what that would look like. So, Father, would you help us to notice that this week in real time to trust that you are with us and you are working and you always reveal your good news to us in ways that we need it most when we need it most. Father, we want to be the kind of people who can surrender easily to the most challenging calls that Jesus puts on our lives. We need practice, we need help, and we are grateful for this tribe of people committed to the same. We ask you, Father, to give us the grace to surrender to what this may look like and to find the joy of it, as we'll talk about next week. We give this week to you, and we surrender ourselves to your good news the best that we know how today, in Jesus' name. And everybody agreed and said, amen. <laughs>